Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Heavenly Father, I pray for grace in this time as I stand before your people again and deliver to them your word. I pray for illumination from the Spirit. I pray that my words would only be consistent with your word, that I would be thinking your thoughts after you and delivering these things accurately to your people. I pray that you give us all grace in this time as we consider how you created a new humanity, according to the Apostle Paul. Give your people grace to understand these things and to take them into their souls to their benefit. And I praise you and I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, I am an ex and sometimes and oftentimes current construction worker and I focus in on remodeling. I don't do a whole lot of new construction, especially these days. But any man, I think red-blooded man, who does construction work can tell you that the best part of the construction process is deconstruction. It is demo day. Maybe it says a lot about me, but I consider one of the highlights of my illustrious career to be the time when I was but a lowly employee, and I was left at a job with an existing structure for three days with a sledgehammer and a jackhammer and told to go to it. I loved every second of it. I took the walls down by smashing the concrete block from beneath them. I peeled off all the plywood from one of the roof sections and then went up, and at that point, you know, the trusses are only held on by toenails. So you can just take your finger, and I did. I took my finger just like that and knocked it over, and then the one hit the other one, hit the other one, hit the other one. By the time it got to the end, it hit with so much force that it ripped the front of the garage off. It was glorious. Women don't understand this. It doesn't make any sense. Um, And you shouldn't think much about it because it's not going to make sense to you. We are simple creatures, and we like to destroy things. That's it. It's a kind of glory in it. Well, Paul wrote of a glorious demo day as well far more so than anything I've been involved in. This one is one for the ages, and his exposition of this is found in Ephesians 2.13 through 16. In Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new 
man, or literally one new humanity, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. But what Paul wrote of after the fact in Ephesians 2 was lived out by Peter in Acts chapter 10. Paul told the story, but Peter was the one standing there with a the sledgehammer, so to speak, being used of God to tear down the religious and practical barrier between worshipers of Yahweh, of Hebrew extraction, and of Gentile extraction. Now, last week I gave you the testimony of Cornelius, and this was largely a simple explanation of his role in the narrative. But as promised then, we're now going to be examining Peter's role in this. But unlike the situation with Cornelius, there are profound theological and doctrinal considerations that have to be dealt with when we go through the testimony of Peter in this. There are a lot of misapprehensions and misapplications, as well as flat-out heresy, that has been produced by the ignorant and the malign alike, and they use this text to justify much of it. So because we have much to address, we're going to get right into it. This week we're going to recover some of the same ground in Acts 10 as last week, as well as pushing into Acts 11 in the first 18 verses. But to begin, please read along with me in Acts 10 verses 1 through 23. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, but get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. 
So he invited them in and gave them lodging, and on the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now we're going to jump right into points, and these points are going to be a combination of exegesis and application dealt with together. First point is this. Peter was not bigoted against Gentiles prior to his vision, and if you think that he was, you're going to miss the point and instead make points from this that are illegitimate. Anti-bigotry is often erroneously preached from this portion of Scripture, even though bigotry nor ethnic superiority even appear to play a role. Now, previously, this did play a role in the life of the disciples. Most famously, that incident with the Sons of Thunder trying to genocide a people group for not giving them hospitality. So this was at work because of that. Old bigoted Peter finally seeing the light, renouncing his ethnic superiority, preaches very well. This is compounded in our day when everything is about skin color and divisions based upon immutable characteristics. But I sincerely believe that if you exegete this text properly, it doesn't preach from this at all. So how we're going to handle this and how I'm going to prove to you what I've just posited is that I am going to act as Peter's defense attorney. And that then would make you all the jury. And I am going to admit here exculpatory evidence, or evidence that I believe to be exculpatory, demonstrating my client's innocence. However, I will say that my point goes beyond this initial point and bleeds into all the rest of the considerations. So really, I will be making his defense throughout and for the duration. Also, before we start this trial, let me say in my own defense that you can trust my assessment all the more here because I would be absolutely fine in assigning blame to Peter if it were truly due him. He has screwed up royally in the past. He is going to screw up royally in the future, that being in the book of Galatians. I'm not a pro-Peter apologist. I am just hopefully pro-proper interpretation. But I submit to you, the jury, as Exhibit A in defense of my client Peter, a.k.a. Simon, a.k.a. Cephas, Acts 10, verse 6. He, Peter, is staying with a tanner named Simon. Now, Simon the tanner is a Jew. But his profession and the fact that Peter is willing to live with him long term as he has is telling about the perspective of Peter upon people who are not considered to be ideal practitioners of the Hebrew religion. And indeed, uh, Simon the tanner falls far short of what would be considered ideal. As a matter of making a living, the man has to deal with animals in a way that renders him ceremonially unclean every single day that he goes to work. Leviticus 11.35 speaks to this. And while it is not a sin for him to be a tanner, it does preclude him from being involved in ministry and holding certain positions within the temple. It's somewhat akin to menstruating women. They were not sinning as a, a fact of their biology working itself out, but it did render them unclean so that they would have to go through additional water cleansing rituals in order to enter back into fellowship with God's people in the temple. Somewhat of a situation here with Simon the Tanner. And so for this reason, a lot of good Jews look down upon this man. Peter here is not so highfalutin as to not be willing to spend time with him. Indeed, he lives in his house, probably in an upper room with a separate access. But nevertheless... But next, consider the reception that Peter gives to the very Gentile servants of Cornelius. Verse 23, he, Peter, invited them in and gave them lodging. And I want you to hold on to that word because 
It's likely that it means more than you think that it means. And on the next day, he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Now, lodging or zanizo means to entertain as a guest. That very famous passage in Hebrews 13, verse 2, that tells us that we inadvertently and unwittingly at times entertain angels, that's the same word being used here. You have tremendous hospitality. This is hospitality by the standard of the Jews. You might say then that they are receiving the red carpet treatment from Peter. He's doing all the things for them. Undoubtedly, they are sharing in that meal that he was waiting for. Now that it is ready, you can assume foot washing here also. And a myriad of other considerations that would have been given to them in keeping with good Jewish hospitality. And ostensibly, he did not have to do all of this. In verse 20, the Holy Spirit says for Peter to accompany these men. He never says to entertain them as Peter has. But what is critical to note here is that everyone involved is eating a kosher meal and observing kosher practices consistent with the law. And in that case, Peter has violated Jewish norms by bringing these men into his house. But he has not violated God's law. Being in a Gentile's house presented real problems. But although having a Gentile in your house was a reviled practice among the Jews, God didn't have an issue with it. So neither does Peter because Peter's not a bigot. And finally, consider Peter's first contact with Cornelius, verse 25. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. Now, a sincere Jew would probably have rejected this in every instance and would have refused to receive worship. But it's doubtful that most of them would have made a clear statement of equality like this with a Gentile man. He isn't just saying, don't do that. He's saying, don't do that because I'm just like you. So if Peter is a bigot, uh, he's doing a pretty crummy job of it. He needs to go to some truly hateful people, find some clan members, and get a little bit better at this because that just doesn't, doesn't get it. And furthermore, none of the rest of the Jewish Christians involved in the account as it continues into Acts 11 appear to be bigots either. Acts 11, first 18 verses, contains the account of the predictable fallout from the Gentile revival in Acts chapter 10. We're going to deal with this now, and we're going to deal with it completely and entirely now, but very briefly, and the reason for the brevity here is that it is really just the recounting of the same events that we're dealing with in Acts 10. So if you look to Acts 11, verses 1 through 18, Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision and an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it, I was observing it. And I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures of, and the birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying. Having been sent to me from Caesarea, the Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. 
These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning, and I remembered the word of the Lord and how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Now, how long did it take for them to accept what had happened when it was explained to them? No time. I've known bigots. Shoot, I've been a bigot in many respects. Is bigotry of this kind entrenched as deeply as we're being told it was in these people by so many people? Is it that easily done away with? That little fuss? Not typically. But once they understood what had happened, they glorified God for the Gentiles' inclusion because the issue was not about ethnicity. It was, it would seem, entirely about adherence to orthodox beliefs and practices for both Peter and this group of Jewish believers. And I think in our context, it's a little difficult to think about food and understand the gravity of this because... It's just not something we deal with. We don't have kosher rules and regulations. So I'm going to try to give you another parallel here. And admittedly, it is not an exact parallel. So if you try to make point-by-point -point comparison, it's going to fall apart real quick. But think about if God came to some representative of the Christian faith in the current context, and he said, baptism in Christianity is no longer a thing. That would be earth-shattering, would it not? That's something more along the lines of what has happened here. And in fact, the analogy may not be all that bad considering that John's baptism unto repentance drew a lot from the water-cleansing rituals of the Jews. But at any rate, that's the kind of issue that this is. And all of this leads us into point number two. And that is up until 10 seconds ago, Peter actually would have been sinning if he had eaten bacon. He's not being a fuddy-dud, he's not being a legalist, he's not clinging to human tradition over the word of God. This was the word of God, and he was being obedient to it. Thus saith the Lord, Leviticus 20, 25 through 26, You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable, detestable, by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean, thus you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. So it's not about food. It's about fidelity. Fidelity to the Father, fidelity to Christ. One of the points consistently made in pulpits with reference to this is that like Peter, we need to learn to be flexible. He had to learn to bend, and so we do too. And so that program that's been in the church for like decades, but it's no longer effective if it ever was in the first place, needs to, on the basis of this text and the lessons gleaned from it, not be considered sacred. Now, 
I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a pastor who is more against programs than I am. I think I've been pretty clear on that point from the beginning. And those of you who've been here from the beginning know this. I've beaten that horse to death, necromanced it, and then shot it in the head again and again and again. It's not about programs. It's about culture. So if anybody was inclined to make that point from this text, it would be me. But I recognize on the basis of proper exegesis, I hope, that you're underfunded, ineffective, cheesy VBS. It's not an issue here. This was God's law, which has now been abrogated because the reason for it has now been fulfilled. But for a millennia and a half up to this point, the people of God did not dare transgress the Levitical dietary laws, and that included Jesus. Peter is simply doing what Jesus did. That's it. How is it that Peter has never transgressed these things if he was in ministry with Jesus? Because none of them did. He upheld the law. WWJD is a hypothetical and unhelpful proposition. WDJD, though, what did Jesus do, is much more helpful, and it's very clear. And he upheld the law in every point. And Peter was with him as he did. And furthermore, I don't even believe that Peter was sinning and questioning the angel three times. Surely it is interesting that three times was the number considering Peter's past. But that does not mean that this was sinful. In fact, in the exchange, Peter's reluctance is clearly due to his unwillingness to sin. Verses 13 through 16 again. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. He understands it to be sin. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. Yes, but Peter argued with the angel. Yes, but why did Peter argue with the angel according to the text? Because he didn't understand. Verse 17. Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be. He does not get it. In my personal opinion, which is shared by others, I think the likelihood that he thinks that this is some sort of a test from the Lord and Abraham, Isaac type of situation is probably pretty high. Or maybe he doesn't trust his own senses or his perception of what was said. His lion eyes, his lion ears, but at any rate, how sin has become not sin is not immediately clear to him, and understandably so, considering this is what every faithful Jew understands true practice of the religion of Yahweh to be, and has for a very, very long time. But moving to the third point, we're going to start to settle the significant theological issues presented by this shift. Point number three, aspects of God's law have changed. But God has not. Aspects of God's law have changed, but God has not. Now, let me start here by asking you a question. And it's a run-on sentence. Okay, so stay with me. When pro-sodomite fake Christians want to delegitimize Leviticus in order to delegitimize the Levitical sexual ethic in order to promote sodomy, how do they do this? Very commonly, they take something else from the book of Leviticus and they say, we don't do that anymore. It's the dietary laws. Yeah, well, we can eat shellfish. So why aren't sex and shellfish in the same category? Well, because one derives directly from the nature and character of God, while the other was an application of godly priorities in a specific context. And to start to unpack this and explain this to you, let's step back a bit. And we're going to discuss the law in general. 
And really the two categories of the law that are relevant to us in this discussion are the moral laws and the ceremonial laws. And to help you understand the distinction, I'm going to reference our London Baptist Confession of Faith. On the moral law, it states as follows, quote, The moral law ever binds to obedience everyone, justified people as well as others, and not only out of regard for the matter contained in it, but also out of respect for the authority of God the Creator who gave the law. Nor does Christ in the Gospel dissolve this law in any way, but he considerably strengthens our obligation to obey it. So the moral law persists, it remains, and it must remain and cannot change because the character of God from which it is derived does not change. Ten Commandments are God's moral law, and with exception only to the observation of the Sabbath. These have not changed or been abrogated in any way. And the Sabbath isn't gone. It has been altered in our observation of it. But these things can't be removed because they directly reflect God's character. We're not to lie because God's not a liar. We're not to commit adultery because God, uh, as representative head of husbands with his people, is faithful. Um, And that's the case with all the moral laws. They all are rooted and anchored in the character of God. But in addition to the moral law, Israel was given ceremonial and also dietary laws. On this, the London Baptist Confession says, quote, Besides this law, commonly called the moral law, God was pleased to give the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances. These ordinances were partly about their worship, and in them Christ was prefigured along with his attributes and qualities, his actions, his sufferings, and his benefits. These ordinances also gave instructions about different moral duties. All of these ceremonial laws were appointed only until the time of Reformation when Jesus Christ was the true Messiah and the only lawgiver who was furnished with power from the Father for this end, canceled them and took them away. But in addition to prefiguring Christ, these laws were also how the greater and unchanging moral laws were to be applied by Israel in consideration of their specific context. I'm going to give you an example here. We're going to use the first two laws in the Decalogue. Commandment number one is what? Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number two is you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So how do these dietary laws help faithful followers of Yahweh apply those two laws? Well, idolatry spreads through fellowship. That's why Psalm 1 says not to walk, stand or sit with sinners and not to attend a buffet with them either. And if you live in a manner that is radically different than any of the nations around you, down to diet and rigid cleanliness practices and sacrifices that must be constantly made and holy days that must be constantly observed, and you have to be in Jerusalem for that, you have neither the time nor the opportunity to fellowship with pagans. But was eating unclean animals ever inherently sinful? No, it was not. Idolatry was inherently sinful and is So the distinction is that eating unclean animals was sinful because of what God said. It was not sinful because of who God is. So the moral law has not changed. And therefore, the nature of God obviously has not changed, but the dietary laws have. And back to the issue of sodomy supposedly being justified by the consumption of selfish Mm -hmm. um, Now, I'm going to speak to this here for a second because you'll likely encounter it. 
Eating shellfish is self-evidently consistent with nature and nature's God. It's meat. It's good to eat. You understand why the Lord prevented these things from being consumed at a particular time. But it is natural to consume and enjoy these things. Whereas non-regenerative relationships self-evidently are not. Two men cannot come together and make a baby. And uh, they don't fit together in the same way, obviously, that a man and a woman fit together. So that is a denial of nature and nature's God. And also, if something were to be abrogated by God, you'd have an explicit statement on it, as you do with dietary laws in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and in Acts 15 with the Ecumenical Council that will refer back to this situation with Cornelius. But instead, the Levitical sexual ethic is upheld and reiterated by Jesus and Paul because it has not been abrogated, because it is connected to the character of God directly. But moving forward, why have the dietary laws that were once sanctifying now been rendered obsolete? And that leads us into point number four. Point number four, in a come and see religion, dietary and ceremonial laws were sanctifying, but in a go and tell religion, they are stifling. And this transition from come and see to go and tell has now been made. And this, by the way, is what Peter did not understand. He clearly knew that the Gentiles could get converted. Knew about Ruth, knew about Rahab. For that matter, he knew about the Ethiopian eunuch, didn't he? What are the odds that didn't get back to him? So Gentiles can get saved. He understands that Gentiles can get saved. There are two things that appear to be confusing him in Acts chapter 10, and neither are related to Gentiles can get saved. The first shock to Peter is the scale of this. Cornelius invited everybody and their mother. And for this reason, this has been called the Gentile Pentecost. So, whole lot of people. The second and much bigger surprise, though, is that pagans are not becoming Jewish as they did with Ruth, who said to Naomi, Ruth 1.16, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Prior to Acts 10, that was what conversion entailed. That is what it required. You had to be connected to the temple, which meant you either had to live in or around Jerusalem, or you had to make regular sojourns there in order to practice their religion. You adopted all of their rites and rituals. That is what conversion meant. There had always been a way for Gentiles to get converted, for people of other nations, and it had always been carried out that way. And that's what Peter thought was going to happen. He understood Jesus' many teachings about Gentile conversion. Again, from last week, Matthew 8, 11 through 12, I say to you, that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Peter is also not so dense as to have misunderstood all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations to somehow mean instead Jews only. The commentators, and there are many, who treat this as though Peter is shocked that Gentiles got saved do err greatly. Look, when you look at Peter in the Gospels, you think this guy is as perceptive as a block of wood in many instances. He has moments of revelation. But there are a number of issues that he does not understand. This is not Peter in the Gospels, though. 
okay? This is Peter post-ascension. This is the leader of the Jerusalem church who's been in that position for quite some time. You can see from his preaching, he understands the deep things of God and he understands them very, very well. So he's not missing the most basic points. But he did understand Gentile conversion to entail what it always had previously. Gentiles become Jews. But instead, Gentiles and Jews are becoming Christians. The deference to Hebrews was waning, and it was waning on purpose. The gospel cannot go global in the way that God has ordained if the dietary and ceremonial laws remain. I don't know how many kosher delis there were in Ephesus. I didn't do a study on it, but I think there were probably not enough to accommodate the massive revival that Paul will soon oversee that Brad alluded to earlier. You understand that if these laws are not abrogated, a massive economic infrastructure will have to be built before revival can occur. And I have a lot of kosher delis, a lot of kosher butchers. This is the thrust of what Peter is getting at when he says, verses 34 and 35, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The reference to partiality, don't believe, is about primarily salvation, but what salvation living will look like. What it will mean to be a Christian. What will be involved in the practice of Christian living. And the reference to every nation is an acknowledgement that each nation retains much more of its culture and diet than it ever had before. Again, Ruth was a Moabitess. But when she got converted, she ceased to eat or live in any way as her people had. Thus we have Peter's statement on ethics, verse 35. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Well, that's legalism. No, it's not, actually. Just because it's not. And stop being an antinomian. This faith does indeed require obedience, not as a matter of conversion, but as a matter of sanctification and as the evidence that justification has indeed actually occurred. The second is also not laying a heavy burden upon them. For the first time, he understands that what is right is a whole lot lighter of a load than he ever thought before. And again, you're going to see that in the ecumenical council and what they don't put on the Gentiles. So in the old covenant, dietary laws were put in place to protect the Jews from being influenced by the pagans. In the New Covenant, they were removed to allow Christians to influence the pagans through evangelism. The religion of Yahweh has gone from centralized in a nation to transcending all the nations. That is what all of this is about. And frankly, I think that God bridging the gap between Jew and Gentile and shattering ancient divisions preaches just fine without a social justice tint being added to it. I'm going to leave you with this overarching concept. God wants worshipers and spiritual children, and God wants to redeem poor sinners so much that he will tear down the ancient barriers that he himself erected in order to embrace us. And that same God is calling you today, and he is motivated by the same love as then. He has bridged the gap. He has built the bridge for you. He has enabled you to come to him by his grace. Call out to him through that Jesus that we read about prior to the sermon. That is the means. His passion, his crucifixion, 
his anguish, his humility, it becomes to your benefit and it becomes your path to God. And to a kingdom where there are no second-class citizens, where everyone is on equal footing, we all stand on level ground beneath the cross. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity, Lord. I thank you for giving me grace in this time. And I pray, Lord, that as we continue through this series, you would continue to give us clarity that we may be more like what your spirit wrought in your people in the first century. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.